And I think it's actually it's an interesting passage because it's, it's the first place I think we see shame come into the world. And it's from Genesis 3. And uh, if you have it on your phone or if you have a Bible with you, I'm looking at Genesis 3. And I'm going to read for us verses 1 to 13. And I want to look at this passage really through the, uh, through the kind of the filter of shame and really what it does to us and how God meets us in it. So Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Which, interestingly, God didn't say. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, that's Adam. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, which is fascinating. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let me stop there. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive into what I want to talk about. Let's pray first, though. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you meet us in it. You reveal truth about ourselves, uh, about our need for you about our need for one who will come and cover us and cover our shame. And yet, Lord, you reveal good news about who you are. And Lord, I pray that as we think about just this idea of the shame that so many of us uh, live in and carry, the shame not only that comes from the guilt of what we've done, but the shame that we've just been used to carrying and the way that we see ourselves as just wrong. And Lord, I pray that you would be gracious in our time together, that you would really meet us and bless our time as we think about what your word has to say to us about shame. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what I love about Genesis 3 is kind of, I want to do two things from it tonight. One is to kind of think about this idea of what, it, what shame does to us. And then secondly, I just want to talk about real briefly to think with you about how God meets us in our shame. So that's kind of the two ways I want to go. But first, I want you to think about a little bit, looking at this passage, about what our shame does to us. Because I think if you look at this closely, it does three things to Adam and Eve that is really, really fascinating that I think it still does to us today. Now, just to be clear, like, I love the way Ryan set it up, that guilt, that often, the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is the objective thing, that, that I've done something wrong before God, and I know it. But shame, I would say, is the subjective experience of that guilt, that I feel wrong, that something is off with me. That I could sort of look at Romans 3.23 when, when Paul says, All have fallen short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I feel like I have fallen short, that somehow that I am not as I should be. 
And I think what's interesting is our sin leads us to shame, but if you look at this passage, our shame actually leads us to three places that I think it still leads us to today. And here they simply are. The first is it leads us, especially when we try to deal with it ourselves, to cover, to cover ourselves, to cover things up. You know, it's fascinating that the first thing that happens for Adam and Eve is they realize their nakedness. And that nakedness becomes a bad thing. And what do they do? They try to, they sow fig leaves and they try to cover. And we do the same. There are all kinds of ways that we try to cover over what we do. We try to cover the shame that we feel and carry. That's why some of us go to porn. That's why some of us go to drink. That's why some of us go to, you know, the ways that we do food. There are all kinds of ways that we cover over these feelings of shame that we have and carry with us. So first it leads them to covering. But then the second thing it leads them to that's fascinating is it leads them to actually hide from God. You know, if you look at, look at the change and the difference between their relationship with God before the fall and after the fall, they go from walking in love with him, no, no, no fear in them about who God is and what he does, to hiding from him. To literally, if you look at it, they, they hide themselves behind trees in the garden and they, they're because they're afraid of what he might do knowing what they've done. And you and I do the same. We hide. There are all kinds of ways that we can hide. You know, we can hide uh, from wanting anyone to know the truth about us. From wanting anyone to kind of know what we really struggle with. This is, you know, it's interesting. Social media sort of became a thing for me. And one of the things I had a good friend say to me, and he was like, Sammy, you're interesting because you do this thing where you always are trying to project an image of what you want people to think of you and know about you. And yet there's such a disconnect between the, the image you're projecting and the real you. And when you know the real me, you know all these sort of struggles that, that I maybe can keep from, you know, like appearing like I have them, but internally, and once you really get to know me, they're there. Just, if my wife were here, she'd give you, like, lots of examples of that. <laughs> um, but, even, but even within marriage, like, I've been married almost 11 years, and one of the hardest parts of marriage for me is the ways that I still, to this day, there are parts of my life that I want to hide from her. Because I feel like if she knew them... If she knew where I really was or what I really struggled with or how I really thought or what I had really done, there's no way she could love me. And Adam and Eve in this passage are feeling the same thing. They're feeling like if God knows that we ate of that tree that he told us not to eat of, there's no way he could ever love us. And so they hide. So it leads us to cover, to cover over things. To, we, 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 deal, we, we create strategies to deal with our shame. It leads us to hide. We're terrified that anyone could really know us and love us, much less, especially God. And then the third thing it does is it leads us to get really defensive. And if you're looking at the passage, it's the end of the passage. Adam and Eve get very, very defensive. And so they do that thing where they blame shift. So God, can, God lovingly confronts so that they might know the truth about themselves. And then he might meet them in forgiveness. And instead what they do, instead of owning their sin, instead of owning their struggle, they immediately point the finger. Adam points it to Eve. Eve points it to the serpent. They get defensive. And this is what shame does to us. We cover, we hide, we get defensive. We create strategies, coping mechanisms to deal with the shame that we carry. And I want to say the shame both of what we've done. And it's important to say some of us carry shame because of what's been done to us. So part of my deep shame comes from sexual brokenness. And part of that sexual brokenness it stems from peer abuse that I experienced in middle school that led to patterns of, of sort of sexual acting out that were still, you know, were still, uh, long after I became a Christian, a part of my life. And they both created this intense shame cycle for me, 
where I felt shame about who I was and what I was doing and what had been done to me. And so it took, the only way I knew how to deal with it, though, was the acting out, and that which led me back to shame, which led me back to acting out, which led me back to shame. And whether your story is sexual brokenness or whatever it is, that's sort of the guilt-shame cycle, the way it works, what keeps us stuck in it. And we create these strategies, and typically when we do it on our own, those strategies lead us to more shame. And then we, because they lead us to more shame, we want to hide from people because we think if anyone really knew where we were and what we struggled with, they could never love us. And because we're hiding, we're desperately clinging to these addictions for some of us, and we get defensive about them because we don't know how else to do life but for holding on to these, these patterns and ways of life that bring us some measure of comfort even though they lead us back to shame, and we get stuck in it. And I love the way that Brene Brown talks about it. Brene Brown, if you do anything from after, like a, it would, it would do a lot of good to just Google Brene Brown and shame. There's, she says so many good things that are helpful. Here's one thing she says that I love. She says, shame needs three things, three ingredients to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And how perfectly do those pair with covering, hiding, getting defensive. And so what it does is that we keep, we keep it, we don't say anything about it, we hide it, we're afraid people are going to judge us, so we stay in our shame. Which is why, you know, this is a little bit of an aside, but this is why, like, the idea of bringing these things into the open, the idea of finding safe people where we can talk to about what's really going on, what we're really struggling with, what, what is causing our shame is so, so huge. Because it gives us the opportunity for someone who knows the gospel, who knows their own stuff, and yet knows that in the light of the grace of Jesus that can look us in the eyes and say, I know this about you, Jesus paid for this, and I love you. And so part of what I hope happens tonight is you know, the only thing that breaks, one of the, the first things that begins to break the shame cycle is beginning to talk about it. And to beginning to talk about it with people who get the gospel and who understand their own need for Jesus so they're going to give you Jesus as you talk about the things that make you feel shame. Um, but here's the deal with shame. Is this a powerful voice in our lives, typically? You know, I don't know if you're like me, but from the moment I wake up, I'm living in a world of shoulds. From the moment I wake up, I should have woken up earlier, typically. Like, I mean, I've got kids now. I have four kids that are uh, nine to three. And I still, I'm 34 years old, and I still struggle with waking up. So from, typically for me, the moment I wake up, I should have woken up earlier. That leads to, I should have worked out this morning which leads to, I shouldn't have eaten those donuts this morning. <laughs> which leads to, I should have had more appointments this morning. Which leads to, I shouldn't have eaten Bojangles for lunch today. Which leads to, I shouldn't have taken a nap at work today. Which I did. Um, <laughs> talk about shame. It's good to get that out. I hope y'all are safe people. Um, <laughs> now I want to, I immediately want to defend that and say, I wasn't that busy. I had meetings in between. Um, <laughs> Shame is a powerful voice, but it is a terrible motivator. Uh, one of my good friends, Kevin Twitty, he's RF Guy at Belmont. He does indelible gray stuff. He likes to say, you know, what shame does is we should all over ourselves. And we live. <laughs> Every time I say that, I like kind of regret saying it. Uh, but we do. We live in this where we are. We're just covered with the shame of should. We're covered with what we should be. Or what we shouldn't be. What we should do, what we shouldn't do. It's really, praise God for Romans 7, where Paul says, 
the things, the very things that I know I ought to do, I don't do. And the very things I know as a Christian I shouldn't be doing, I don't do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you're in touch with your shame, the one thing that you know is there's nothing you are going to do about it to get out of it. And that's the bad news. The bad news that I have for you tonight is there's nothing you can do about your shame. Because there's nothing you can do about your sin. But I also have good news. And this is my favorite part why I love Genesis 3, why I wanted to be here tonight. This is why I love this passage. Is look at what God does. So Adam and Eve have directly disobeyed him. They've eaten of the fruit that he's, God has said, do not, you can eat of all of my bounty, but don't do this one tree. So that I know that you trust me and that you love me. And they do. They're deceived. They, they think, did God really say, can I really trust him? Does he really love me? We're going to do it. They do it. They immediately feel shame. They see their nakedness. They cover. They hide. They get defensive. What is God going to do? And I think some of us have a view of God that says God is going to come in. And he's like the sheriff. Like he's the sheriff from like the Western movies we love. He's Clint Eastwood. He's going to come in. He's going to clean up town. He's going to like throw them against the tree and like shame. You know, that he's going to shame them. Then he's going to come and say, how dare you disobey me? How dare you defy me? Who do you think you are? Because God could do that, right? Who do we think we are? That the one who made us, that we go against his will for us, that the one who loves us, that we reject that love. And instead of, what I love about this passage is instead of shaming them, he literally covers their shame. If you look at the passage later, he undresses them. He takes the fig leaves, the sad fig leaves that they've tried to sew together for themselves. And let's just get this image of God. He lovingly undresses them because he's prepared for them animal skins. That will cover them perfectly. Genesis 3 is fascinating because it's the first picture in in all of scripture. That the way our shame is going to be covered. Is through the sacrificial death of another. And you and I know as Christians that the sacrificial death of those animal skins. That are going to cover our shame we're pointing to. Is Jesus. Jesus who we know is the Lamb of God. who, Who died the death that we deserve to die. Who lived the life we deserve to, that we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die. And he covers our shame. And what I love about Jesus and what makes me a Christian all over again is that Jesus does not shame us out of our sins. He loves us out of our sins. That Jesus doesn't love you where you should be. He loves you where you are. And he meets you where you are. And instead of going from sort of an adversarial judge who's going to crush you if you don't shape up. He comes alongside you and he covers you and he bears your shame at the cross. And then you begin, as he covers your shame and you begin to live in his love, he begins to transform the way you do life and begins to create new patterns. Here's the way I was thinking about it, thinking about those categories. We don't have to cover our sin. We don't have to cover our shame. Because there is one who's already covered it. And he covered it at the cross. There's nothing that you feel ashamed about tonight that Jesus did not pay at the cross. We don't have to hide. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go sort of knowing half the story about us. You know, I I love, I don't know if you're a Downton Abbey person, but I love um, Lady Dowager Countess when she says, you know, when people get married, they all go down, everyone goes down the aisle knowing half the story. Um, Which is really true. Which is interesting. (laughs) But that's about marriage. Jesus didn't go to the cross knowing half the story about you. Jesus went to the cross knowing... Everything that you feel ashamed for tonight. And you don't have to hide. I love the way that J.I. Packer says it. J.I. Packer says it like this. He says, the love of God is utterly realistic. The love of God for me is utterly, utterly realistic. Based on every point 
own prior knowledge about the worst of me. God is not disillusioned or delusioned in his love for me. He knows the worst. He knows me at my worst, and yet he loves me, and he loves you at his best. We don't have to cover, we don't have to hide, and we don't have to get defensive, because Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our shield and defender. Jesus is the one who, who, who pleads, you know, we sing sometimes, he pleads his righteousness, he pleads his sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus is the one who is your shield and defender and your advocate. I love the old hymn. It simply goes like this. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. And when you begin to believe that about yourself, when you begin to see yourself in Christ and you see yourself in the gospel, you begin to know that that's true about you. That Jesus is your defender. Here's the way I've been thinking about it, and I'll close with this. Um, so, one of my favorite movies, it's going to sound weird, just bear with me. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Babe. If you know Babe, Babe is the story of a pig that becomes a sheepdog, and he becomes a, a, an incredible gift to Farmer Hoggett and wins the prize. I don't want to spo- spoiler alert, just for the movie. For you. But if you've seen it or if you haven't seen it, there's a scene in the movie where Babe is he's training and training and training to take the place of the sheepdog, and he's about to go to the fair to try to win the prize, and it's kind of a weird story. Um, but there's that scene where one of the animals, I can't remember which one, tells Babe, you realize what's going to happen. You're going to go to the fair, and regardless if you win or not, you're going to be bacon at Thanksgiving. Like, Farmer Hoggett, has, there's no such thing as a pet pig. Like, he's going to turn you into bacon. And Babe's face sort of goes down, he runs away. And he thinks, I can't trust Farmer Hoggett anymore, I'm going to be bacon, and he runs away. Gets lost. They come and find him. Farmer Hoggett brings him back to the house. And if you, it's a beautiful... Really, this is worth Googling as well. I, I <laughs> put before you. There's a scene, if you remember, if you've seen it, there's a scene where Farmer Hoggett's babe has gotten sick from running away and being out in a cold, stormy night. And Farmer Hoggett's trying to nurse him back to health. And he literally is nursing him. And there's a scene in the movie where he, Farmer Hoggett not only begins nursing him, but he begins, he begins singing over him. And he begins dancing, and all the other farm animals crowd along the window, and they're like looking, because they're like, what kind of a farmer sings over a pig? And every time I watch that scene, I'm with my kids, and I'm like weeping, because the thought is this, what kind of a God sings over sinners? What kind of a God not only sings, but says in Zephaniah three seventeen that he delights, his, his, sing, his song is a song of delight over you. And y'all, that's, that's not the ideal you. That's the you who's done what you've done. That's the you who right now in this room is struggling before you came, five minutes before you came, with what it is that you struggle with. And that's the you that the gospel says God loves but not just loves, he delights in and sings over. And here's kind of the thought for me. What is ever going to keep us from wallowing in our shame? It's a God who delights in sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, that's hard for us to believe. There's not a, a relationship that we've probably experienced in, in our lives that is like that. And everything in us screams, how in the world could that be true? And yet, Lord, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel is it's too good to be true. And yet, Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for my friends tonight. You would help us to believe it. 
that you would let the gospel begin to speak and shape the ways that we do shame and, and feel shame and live in it. That you begin to free, free us from it because of the ways that you bore it. You bore it on our behalf because you love and delight in us. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen.